0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Andy Haslam. This season, we'll be speaking with the key decision makers who reap the benefits and gain the most value from effective risk management. We'll be exploring their perceptions, interactions, and experiences, as well as understanding what they personally have found to be the most rewarding and beneficial aspects that the discipline has to offer. We hope these conversations provoke thought and discussion amongst both risk and non risk professionals to lift the lid on how it's effective delivery can add real value to the roles of the beneficiaries. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. I'm your host, Andy Haslam, and today I've got the pleasure of being joined by Tom Carey. So Tom, welcome to Riskologists. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> we always ask this question to everyone, um, you know, how's your podcast game, and have you done anything like this before? Did you listen to them at all? Or
1: well, I suppose by virtue of the fact that you're the first person ever to ask me, how is my podcast game? <laughs> I think that sort of gives the game away, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> no, it's my uh, first first podcast, uh, so I'm a total novice, but I do listen to the odd podcast, I must admit, mm-hmm. and something I've gotten more into over the last six or 12 months, but um, yeah, no, looking forward to it. Be sure and go easy on me.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it all nice and, nice and conversational, so yeah, it should be fine. Um, As always, we like to kick things off with a bit of a journey to date. So, you know, how you've started in your career, where it's taken you, a bit of a timeline up to this point of of recording the podcast today, so fire away.
1: Okay, so my career started uh, in 1994 when I graduated as a young engineer from University College Dublin, and I suppose, despite the fact that I preferred socialising to studying, uh, I somehow or another managed to get one of only four jobs that were uh, given to our year, uh, final year civil engineering class of over 70 and uh, was put on a plane and came over to, to London actually uh, um, and started my career with John Sisk, the, the building contractor. So that was a, a good start, worked on some really interesting projects. I actually stayed in London or in the UK at least uh, for the next 11 years. Um, worked with CISC for a while as a site engineer and then as sort of a section manager. Um, I joined a McNicholas construction or Green Max, as you would know them in the UK. I was with them for seven years. And really, uh, you know, they were some of the, the, the most formative years of my career. Um, a contractor who had their own labor force, a lot of their own plant and managing projects for them. as a as a a site manager project manager subsequently operations manager you know you really got into the cut and thrust of construction Mm. um because you were you were organizing the workforce you were organizing the plant. you we didn't subcontract an awful lot of the work out and uh you know was fortunate enough to to work on some fantastic projects predominantly in the rail and utility sectors i did some tunneling projects as well and uh really you know learned my my trade i suppose as as an engineer but what <clears throat> what i did realize pretty early on was that the, the technical side of things wasn't really where my where my interest lay it was more in the managerial uh side of things and that's where where i developed my career but um in and around the late 90s, I sort of realized that my, my engineering degree and uh, you know was taking me so far, but I didn't really have the business acumen to drive my career on to the next level. So I went and I did an MBA and found that very, very uh, helpful and transformative in my own career in terms of allowing me to see a much bigger picture and to get involved in other aspects of uh, the businesses that I was working in. Mm. Um, and I suppose to some extent, you know, help me help me understand risk a little bit better because obviously that's a key part of of business management so um you know I, I i wove that into into my role um but but you know uh was keen to, to there's a lot of public private partnerships going on in london at the time and i was keen to get involved in those sorts of projects so after seven really excellent years. I left MacNicholas Construction and joined John Lang PLC and worked on a portfolio of rail uh, PPP projects. Um, and, um, you know, that was really interesting. We might come back to that because that was my first exposure to to risk management been done really, really well and really comprehensively. Um, but I returned to Ireland in 2005. Um, there was a lot happening in Ireland at the time and it was offered a role in the public sector um to head up um the commercial and contracts team for a portfolio of light rail projects in in dublin for those of you that have been to dublin you'd be familiar with the lewis light rail system so we were building a number of extensions to that we were also bringing forward an underground metro in dublin at the time so that was a big role and too good to turn down so i came back to ireland and spent nine years in in you know in a very challenging but very fulfilling role delivering major projects in, in in the light rail sector in Ireland. Um, then I uh, spent a couple of years with Dublin Airport in a pretty similar role. I was head of project controls there, um, You know, getting, I suppose, a flavor for a slightly different sector in terms of aviation and uh, those sorts of projects and all the restrictions that go with them. Um, I toyed for a while with changing career, would you believe? I had, I suppose, developed a, uh, an interest in contracts and disputes and um, I had done a postgraduate in arbitration and law by that stage. I had joined the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. So I went back to to college to study law and um, was contemplating turning um, a changing career and becoming a barrister. Um, I subsequently didn't go all the way with that, completed the law degree all right, but decided to combine my, my, my engineering and construction management with the law. And, and that's what I've been focusing on since. Mm-hmm. So I went back into the private sector um, in 2017, uh, spent a couple of years with an international uh, infrastructure services business. Um, And then just about four years ago, I joined my current employer, which is Turner and Townsend, who I had worked with for a number of years, particularly in the public sector. They were one of our advisors on on Metro in Dublin in particular. And um, so, you know, I've had a great opportunity with them to head up the advisory business in Ireland um working on some of the biggest and, and and most exciting projects in Ireland um and we're currently looking to expand our advisory services now across Europe so you know i suppose it's it 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 scares me to say that it's been a 28 year career to this point in time because that seems like an awful long time and you just realize how bloody old you are, <laughs> but, uh, nonetheless, you know, I've, I've, I've been fortunate to have worked, uh, for the, for contractors on the client side with two different organizations and now, now in consultancy. So the dark art of consultancy, I finally <laughs> gave into it and, uh, that takes us up to date.
0: Also, well, it's, it's an incredible sounding career with such a, a varied experience in, in all these different sectors. So it's, you know, I, I, your insight is going to be invaluable. So thanks, you know, thanks for the run through of that one, Tom, but before we kind of get stuck into the topic in a little bit more detail. And after all, this is a risk management podcast. Um, I think you touched on it very briefly just then, but, um, you know, what's your experience been with risk management over your career and, you know, what sort of relationship have you had with it? I suppose, look in, in, in the,
1: perhaps the first decade of my career. And not because I was working with contractors predominantly, but I suppose risk management was something that we did. Um, but not to a very comprehensive level. We would have had risk registers. And particularly as the NEC form of contract started to come to the fore in the 90s, um, obviously that drove better project management practice and the need to have early warning registers, risk registers and stuff like that. But, you know, it would have been used to manage and, and, and to mitigate risks. It wouldn't have been particularly comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, up until the point that I joined John Lang, PLC. And as I said, you know, we had a portfolio of PPP projects which John Lang themselves were investing in. They were the developer of these projects quite often. And as you'll, you'll appreciate and your listeners will appreciate, you know, when you're putting your own money into something, uh, particularly a construction project, um, it 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 sheds a different focus or creates a different focus, so the need to absolutely understand the risks associated with these projects when we were developing the business cases in the early stages of developing these PPP projects was an absolute must. And 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 I suppose it's where you know they John Lang PLC had a specialist risk consultancy business that worked for them, and um, as I got involved in in, in various projects, I. You know, was involved w- with with these uh, consultants, uh, doing workshops, producing both cost and schedule risk analysis, quantitative quantitative cost schedule risk analysis, and you know it was a real eye opener. It was a real eye opener. Wow, you know this is this is a different level, and um, so you know what I would say is that ever since then I've taken that with me uh, for the rest of my career, particularly, you know, working on the client side, uh, working on major projects on the client side, um, you know, the need to do QRAs, the need to do good risk management. Uh, it's something that I've been a, a huge advocate of ever since, you know, I have um, developed risk management um uh, expertise within all the organizations that I've been in ever since, and um, you know embedded QRAs <clears throat> within those organizations, uh, no doubt something that that, that, that will come back to. So you know I suppose um, I think when it's done properly, risk management and QRAs in particular, um, you know, I can I can tell you for sure from experience that it can be a game changer for for projects. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, the the uh, certainty with, with, with which you can plan your project um, and also the certainty of outcome with regard to, you know, with regard to timelines and budgets and stuff like that. And there's a couple of, of examples, no doubt, that we might touch on later on in the discussion. But, um, yeah, so, you know... Um, and that applies that that need for risk management and that benefit of risk management in my experience applies across a broad range. I've implemented it on multi-billion euro rail projects. I've implemented it on IT projects. Implemented it on much smaller scale infrastructure and building projects. You know, and 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 sometimes there's a cut your cloth to suit your measure type approach needed. But um, yeah, you know, it is that that's that's how my. My relationship with risk management has has evolved to being, a, you know, a real, a real advocate of it and seeing the
0: the huge benefits that it can bring when done properly. Exactly. I think that's a good a good point to to end on there is when it's done properly. Um kind of getting into the, the the topic that we've got for today. So as everyone can probably tell from the title of the episode, uh today we're going to be discussing QRA and namely, is it worth it? Um or is it worth the risk? Sorry, I should say. Um we'll go into this in a little bit more detail shortly, but from your perspective, I think you've but slightly touching it already you know why did you choose this topic in particular you know, we we discussed i think before this podcast a few different points but is there anything that um it made it in particular something to 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 focus on for today yeah
1: i suppose look i i've gone into organizations where they have done risk management but to be honest with you it has been very much uh a tick box exercise um the production of a risk register is obviously very good practice from a project management point of view, but you can take it so much further. Um, And I suppose people often struggle with, well, you know, at at the extreme, you know, you get project managers perhaps that don't like the the hassle of having to put together risk registers and mitigation plans and different Mm -hmm. things like that and managing and monitoring that because it's you know, it requires a, a, a level of discipline and time and stuff like that. And, and and the whirlwind of the day job sometimes makes it seem difficult to fit these things in. But so you will get the reaction that, oh, I manage risk. I'm managing risk all the time. You know, I don't need to write it down. I'm managing it. But of course, we all know that you do need to write it down because you need people to help you manage risk. And you need to have a common shared understanding of what the risks are in a project. And most importantly, what the mitigation measures are. Um, and have those mitigation measures in place and agreed with the team. Um, Then you get, you know, you get some people who who do risk registers and faithfully produce risk registers and put in mitigation measures and stuff like that. But they see that as the the sum total of their job and they sort of feel if they've got a risk register and it's been updated uh, once a week or once a month or whatever it is, depending on the size and scale of the project that they've done their job. And they often find it difficult to go. Well, why would I spend more time and effort on doing quantitative risk analysis? But I suppose that's why we, we we've got this topic. You know, is it worth it? And 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 I can I would I would say it absolutely is worth it in the right circumstances. Um, the benefit that you get out of doing that forensic analysis of risk and detailed assessment of the time and cost impacts of the risks that you've identified. Um, and you can link that into your schedule. You can link that into your budget. Um, you all of a sudden have a far more robust view of your project. You have a much better handle on how you're going to manage your project and what needs to be done to make it successful. And because those things are in place, then you vastly increase the probability of having a successful outcome and and getting the project team behind you in 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 achieving that. Um, so I suppose you know the, the the title is appropriate because some people might be sitting there going oh qra that sounds very complicated i need specialists and stuff like that is it for me um and you know and depending on the size and complexity of your project i would say that it absolutely it absolutely is and something that um that people should take that leap of faith and 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 you know get 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 into qras because the benefits are are are, are significant mm-hmm
0: brilliant cheers for that tom um so i'm sure the majority of our listeners will already have some understanding of what qra is um however for the benefit of anyone listening who doesn't uh quantitative risk analysis or qra is uh, basically a tool which is used in the risk profession to assess confidence across cost and schedule objectives so it helps to provide insights into where a project or a business may be particularly vulnerable uh, and so we can then focus our attention on those areas and um, so for Tom, you know You've already mentioned about how you come across this thing called QRA, but did you have any preconceptions or expectations at the start of your journey with it? Um, I suppose not particularly. It was pretty new to me, Andy,
1: to be honest with you. So I suppose I, I'd like to think that I had an open mind. I'm sure at some point I was saying, Who the hell is this guy and what is he doing? Or, you know, why are we going through all this rigmarole? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, uh, you have to bear with it. And when you see the output and then. I mean, the thing that struck me on the um, on the PPP projects that I was working on with John Lang uh, was that we did we did we did QRAs regularly. So it wasn't a one off thing for the purposes of the business case. Yes, it was. But it also then was a continuous process of revisiting, perhaps on a quarterly basis, our risk exposure. And the great thing then from a project contract management point of view was that you could see that you were effectively managing risk because you were constantly reducing your exposure. And, you know, you need to do a quantitative risk analysis to be able to quantify your risk exposure, whether that be time risk or cost risk. Um, So, you know, by the time you get on to iteration three, four, five, and you can start to see the the risk journey that you're going on. And it's a great one for, you know, particularly for stakeholders and for boards and stuff like that, that you can go and say, look, we're managing risk effectively on this project by virtue of the fact that we are reducing our exposure. And sometimes it goes up, you know, sometimes things happen and the risk profile might go up, but you can explain that too, but at least you're, you're managing it. So I don't think I had any preconceptions, but whatever they were, they were pretty quickly dispelled by, you know, a a, a really good uh, risk consultant who who produced good quality outputs that we had a lot of confidence in because of the time and effort that went into producing um, the outputs. And um, as I said, that repetition then to see the progress of of mitigating and
0: managing risk effectively was, you know, was invaluable. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, how do you how do you measure the value of risk management with and without QRA then? I mean, do you feel that risk management maturity has improved because of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I suppose, you know, um, if you look at the environment that we're in now um, compared to, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago, the need to be able to um, demonstrate, be transparent with a broad range of Broad range of stakeholders on a project that you are managing this project effectively. You know, really good quality risk management is a is a is a really important tool in that respect. I mean, um, I'm currently advising um, the Irish government on on uh, as a peer review on some of the major projects that we're bringing forward in Ireland. And we have, um, in Ireland at least, we have introduced a, a sort of a major projects advisory peer group that that give assurance to government that these projects are ready to be brought forward to the next stage. Mm. And I can tell you now that risk management and the approach that those projects have adopted to risk management, have they done Have they got good quality registers? Have they done schedule risk analysis? Have they done cost risk analysis? They're the questions that we're asking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago. So I definitely think people are beginning to realize that, you know, there's value in this and managing your risk is a key part of having a good project. You know, obviously there's the Brent Flybergs of this world and that have sort of popularized, um, good risk management and what have you. But I think it's definitely maturing, particularly on the area that I'm most familiar with, which is infrastructure projects mm-hmm. and major infrastructure projects. Um undoubtedly we've come a long way. And you know, in fairness to to the UK uh, authorities, you know, um there's a lot of a lot of excellent work being done um by by various different groups there. Um I'm thinking of the major projects um is it major projects group or major projects advisory? Apologies, I don't know the <laughs> name properly, but you know, I think you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, the process that they have around what does good project management look like. You know, risk management is at the is at the heart of it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I mean it's it's kind of leads on to a question that you know we'd come up with here, which was you know we've seen you know have you seen a correlation then where with successful projects or the success of a project, I should say, um, you know, and our organizations that have worked to really kind of embrace risk management and QRA, as opposed to those who haven't.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could give you so many stories (laughs) where it's made a difference. Um, pick, picking the right one is, is, let me give you one good example. Um, I went into an organization that had a pretty basic risk management um, approach. You know, there was risk registers done and stuff like that, but it was really a tick box exercise. And they certainly hadn't done quantitative risk analysis at all. I uh, hadn't even heard of it. The risk person sort of, you know, didn't really understand what it was. And they had this repeated problem <clears throat> in that um, they came up with budgets at the start of their financial year for their for their capital projects. But they they invariably never spent it, okay. So they might have gone and looked for, let's say, I don't know, $200 in a particular year for their capital projects, of which there might have been 60 or 70 individual projects, some big, some small. Um, And over the course of the year, they would constantly write down that budget um, because they weren't delivering the projects on time. They were getting delayed predominantly. And this was a source of huge frustration to this organization, as you Mm. might imagine. They were setting aside this capital, which they viewed could be used elsewhere for for these things, and, and, and they weren't being used. So when I went in there, we introduced QRA, and when we went to set the budget for the next year, we we developed a high level schedule for all of these projects and we didn't have to go into a huge amount of detail, you know, because some projects were at a very early early stage of maybe feasibility or even early design stages. So we didn't always have a great understanding of the scope, but we had enough of information to be able to put together a high level schedule for each of those projects, Hmm. put that into a master program. And then we spent a couple of days, well, not successively, but a couple of workshops, probably all in all, a couple of days, realistically, going through each of the projects, understanding what the main risks might be to the delivery of that project. And some of it was definition issues, some of it was development of design, some of it was constraints that might prohibit construction. Obviously, I don't want to give the game away, but this was in in an, an airport environment, so there was a lot of interface or interplay between projects. You know, if you were doing one project in this part of the airfield, then obviously you couldn't do it in another part. So all of this needed to be contemplated in terms of the risks. And we did a comprehensive piece of work on that. And at the end of it, we came up with a risk adjusted schedule for the 70 or 80 projects for that year. And because we had cost loaded the schedule, we came up with a revised uh, spend profile for the year based on the risk adjusted schedule. And if I remember rightly, just to give you broad figures, and it doesn't matter, but I think that particular year, we're looking for 150 million. By the time we'd finished the, 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 the QRA exercise, we had written it down to something like 115. That was the practical, what we felt was achievable on a risk adjusted basis, right? That financial year, we spent 114.7 million or something ridiculous. Wow. You know, it was so close to it, it was unreal. And to this to this and they've, they've kept that model, but I don't know necessarily if they've uh, applied the same rigour, but you know, people were just delighted with it in mm-hmm. the sense that um, we got the thing so much more realistic because we had made a risk adjustment uh, and we put hard work into it. It wasn't just, okay, let's come up with a few risks for this project or that project. We went into it in depth, brought in the people that knew what they wanted to deliver and discussed it, identified the risk and then worked that through um a qra on the schedule so you know there the proof is in the pudding i could give you several other examples but there's a you know a really a really good
0: one mm-hmm. no it's a fascinating it's it's impressive to see that it's actually done what it's supposed to be doing and it's it's been so valuable to the to that particular client so uh, it's yeah. a really great insight for it um and we we touched on a little bit before or you mentioned before that you know qra is one of those things that it's it's almost particular to your business, whether it's it's going to work or it's particular for that project, but you know, what level do you feel it's worthwhile conducting a QRA to really realize that benefit?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good question and a difficult one, as you'll appreciate, I'm sure um, to answer because um, you could sort of try and come up with an notional value and you could say, well, you know, you would only do QRA and projects over 5 million or yeah. 10 million or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that doesn't do it justice because you know i have worked on some oh. extremely complex projects that are that are potentially l- lower in value you know that might be in and around that 5 million threshold but because of the nature of the project you know it could be an it project or it could be a construction project but with a lot of moving parts a lot of interfaces um so i think that's a bit of a judgement call but i suppose if you were to try to apply some sort of a rule of thumb you know, you can you can. The thing about it is, in my experience, is you can do QRA light. like I mean, you can <clears throat> the level of um, analysis and risk that you go into is really you 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 cut your claw to suit your measure. If you've got a five million project, it doesn't mean you can't do a QRA in it. Mm-hmm. It just means that you probably don't have a risk register that's got 200 risks on it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you, you, you know, your schedule is not going to be a four or five year schedule that's really complex with a lot of different interfaces that you need to manage and correlation of risks and stuff like that. But you, it can still be effective and it can be done much quicker for simpler projects. So, you know, my thing would be do it if you can. Um, no matter what the size of the project, and certainly anything over five million, I think you should be seriously considering doing it. But that's just based on my own my
0: own experience, you know. Yeah, it's definitely a case of horses for courses. I think is you know absolutely to, to use another expression for it. But yeah, it's definitely yeah. um, it's good to hear that it's it's relevant on the smaller projects as well as the bigger ones. I think um, so. So kind of moving on from that. Um, so from a, a modeling perspective, um, I kind of believe there's there's a couple of extremes, you know, when it comes to, to to modeling. Um, again, on one side of the coin is someone who who knows how to use the software and run the analysis, but there isn't much in the way of challenging the inputs and providing insight on the outputs. So a bit more of just like a, a handle cranker, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. on the other side, there are those who are exceptional modelers. However, they they kind of lack the ability to translate those outputs um in a way which is, you know, the lay person can understand and they kind of revert to jargon so things like correlation coefficients and convergence for instance um from your perspective what makes a good risk model and what you know what's worked best for you in your career yeah
1: I mean if you don't mind Andy I'd like to sort of widen the question out to say what yeah, yeah. makes a good risk manager because you know I think that um, the modeling obviously is the is the finessing of the input almost you know so for me and I've seen some really excellent um risk risk managers risk modelers risk consultants mm-hmm. um and I've seen some average ones too in fairness but you know um the important thing is if they're if they're prepared to learn and, and improve but so the art of risk management I think you know first of all I think you need to be good at facilitating workshops so having the ability to get a group of people together um and in a in a in a controlled but but, you know, a safe environment for people to feel free to speak their minds, um, to have a meaningful workshop, to explore risks, brainstorm risks. You know, that's the starting point. And I think that skill is really underestimated because it's not that easy to go into a room with strangers. Sometimes you might know one or two people. Uh, you could have 10 or 12 people in the room they might not all get on with one another Mm -hmm. some of them might be dominant some of them might be quiet Um, and to be able to facilitate a workshop in that environment and to actually draw all the risks out of everybody because everybody has something to contribute and it's probably the person that's been quietest that actually might have sometimes the greatest insight or be thinking about a risk that nobody else is thinking about that's really important to the delivery of the project so that's, you know, that's skill number one. And that's something that is, um, you know, comes with experience and, and, and seeing how other people have done it. I think then, you know, um, what, what is often required after the initial workshops is a lot of follow up and a lot of perseverance in terms of really getting under the skin of risk. So you'll often get a sort of an initial stab at what the risk means, what you might, you know, what the impact of it might be, what the mitigation measures might be. But in a brainstorming session, you'll want to quickly capture the risk and and maybe capture some of the information around the, the, the mitigation measures or the impacts, but move on because, you know, you want to continue that flow. So after the workshop, the follow up is important in talking to the individuals and talking to the team and getting those risks really nailed so that there's a really good understanding of it, a clear understanding of it, you know, a good understanding of the impacts, a good understanding of the mitigation. And this is all leading up to having a really rich risk register with you know, um, a good description of the risk, a three-point estimate uh, for the cost impact, potentially a three-point estimate for the schedule impact, an understanding of what activities within the schedule this risk impacts. And it's often more than one activity. Mm-hmm. It's not just one. Um, and if there's correlation issues, so... Developing that really good quality risk register that you're then going to use your model on is the is the secret to it. And you know we've all heard the expression rubbish in rubbish out, right? <laughs> so um you need to be as a as a risk manager, risk modeler, you need to have that perseverance. you need to have that tenacity to be able to go and talk to people that don't really haven't got the time to talk to you, but nonetheless, you need that information because this is your baby. This is the thing that you're going to model and uh, you want it to be right you want it to be as accurate as possible Mm -hmm. um and then obviously you know to have an understanding of the modeling software to have an understanding of how risks can impact particularly on schedule i think you know um the fact that risks may impact on multiple activities or you may have activities that have multiple risks Um, the ability to be able to navigate and to have a discussion with the project team about what risks are correlated. So what risks, you know, uh, if one happened, the other one couldn't happen um, so that you don't end up with a situation where you're double counting risk almost. So Mm -hmm. that's a really important aspect of it, particularly at the QSRA, the the quantitative schedule risk analysis level. And then, you know, I think another another really important skill is to be able to present the information in a in a meaningful manner so uh, not to make it overly complicated but nonetheless to um to be able to present the data you know the range of probabilities of outcome from p10 up to p90 or whatever it is however you're presenting them understand where the client is at in terms of their governance. Do they use P50? Do they use P80? Or, um, you know, looking at standard deviations so that you can help them appreciate what sort of variance there is in the outcomes at the different probability levels. And then, you know, it's, it's quite often an iterative process. It's not a case of the first time you do it and the first model output is, is, is the final one. Even even in, you know, you you would normally have to go back and maybe fine tune it because you might not that you don't like the outcomes, but it might be throwing up some anomalies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And maybe when you when you sit down and you've got the you've got the modeling, the first pass of the modeling complete, it's a good opportunity to sit down with the project team and go through it and and fine tune things a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and then you know, to be able to present that back to be able to present it to to the project team or even to perhaps more senior people um and you know, in my experience, when you do present that back in a in a very concise and meaningful way, and people see the level of effort and detail that you've got into it creates a huge level of confidence in the project um and you know then the proof is in the pudding in terms of. Um, how accurate it it becomes uh, subsequently, you know, in terms of bringing projects within budget, bringing them on time, which is obviously always a challenge. Um, So I think, you know, there's the the role of the risk modeler, the role of the risk manager is multifaceted and it's not not an easy job, but, um, you know, those skills can be acquired. You don't have to be good at everything. Some people can be good facilitators. Some people can be good modelers. And obviously, you know, people are working to those that have good facilitative skills working on their modeling, perhaps, and vice versa. So, you know, it's all it's it's all part of the journey,
0: isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Well, thanks, Tom. Um moving on really again. So to we've we've mentioned really about the benefits of the 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 positive side of of QRA and how it benefits a lot of organizations and projects and things. So to kind of flip and go to a bit of a devil's advocate. Um you know, with this one, do you think there's there's a potential that we, we put too much faith in QRA sometimes? Um, you know, you've already touched on the fact that sometimes it's, it's based on the inputs being there and, and the old adage, and, you know, garbage in, garbage out springs to mind. Mm. Yeah. Um, look,
1: I mean, I suppose there is there is a risk, uh, pardon the pun, uh, <laughs> to putting too much faith in QRAs for sure. Um, I suppose maybe two ways of, of, of thinking about it. First of all, you know, even before you do a QRA, you've created a pretty good risk register to enable you to do it. And um, hopefully some of your listeners will appreciate that in order to do a, a schedule risk analysis, a quantitative schedule risk analysis, you really have to have a lot of discipline in your schedule. So logic links um, all have to be in order for the risk model to actually work so. There's two things in that, you get a really good risk register and a good understanding of your risks. Hopefully, you've developed mitigation measures and you understand the impacts. So even before you do the modelling, you've got a huge sort of head start on really managing your project and much better and getting a much better handle on managing your project. Uh, the fact that then that you've got to go and make sure that your schedule uh, is 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 is. is um, Fit for a QRA requires a level of discipline in the schedule and fixing uh, illogical links or no links at all Mm -hmm. um, is a really good cleanup of the schedule and often throws out, you know, some some challenges in its own right. So there's two things that you've benefited from and you haven't even run the model yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, when you run the model, then, yes, I suppose, you know, I would have a lot of faith in QRAs because I've seen it and been party to doing it well and have had the benefit of hindsight in, as I described in the instance of the, the annual budget, but also in terms of QSRAs we did on really long projects where the deterministic end date was, you know, I don't know, in two years time, the P80 end date was in three and a half years time. And we ended up delivering the project in three and three quarter years or something like that. So that the benefit of it, but I suppose, You know, it does need that level of diligence and detail in the inputs to make sure that the output is right. Um, What you can do then, and we touched on it earlier, is that you can continuously update your QRA. So it's not a one-off thing. If you see it as a one-off thing, I think then at some point in time, those outputs are going to look maybe inaccurate Mm -hmm. or, or, or less relevant than they were at the time. So the continuous um, process of whether it's quarterly or half yearly or you know monthly if you've got the budget and the, the inclination to do it um, you're constantly updating both your your schedule and cost risk and you're updating your budget you're updating your 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 um, your key milestones in your program so um, you know I think that helps um, in terms of don't put faith in one number, but keep an eye on it and see how it evolves. And if you, you know, if you adopt that really detailed and diligent approach to the development of the register and and getting your schedule right, you've gained something. And if you continuously do your QRA, I think the level of certainty then that you can have in the outputs and the confidence you can have in the outputs, uh, you know, are there and and you don't need to be worried about putting too much faith in it.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, you just mentioned that obviously about the, um, you know, to, to get the best out of it and to have faith in what's going into it It relies on good inputs to it being the risk register and then also with a decent schedule um you know con- considering that approach to ensure that there is a valid you know valid inputs to the QRA have you had any kind of experience that in, in how best to do that how best best to get the best inputs into it to get the most out of the QRA
1: yeah yeah for sure I mean I think one um mistake or oversight that sometimes happens is that there are not enough of people or not a broad enough range of people that are involved in the original risk identification part of the journey, whether that be the brainstorming workshops or the one-to-ones to to understand um, the risks. You know, the last thing that you want is to produce your risk register, do your QRA modeling, and then for somebody to come in and go, oh, you didn't think about this, or you didn't consult me, or you didn't you didn't think about that. So I think, you know, to validate the inputs, you do need a broad range of people. You need the technical people, you need the commercial people, you might need the legal people, you might need the planning people, you obviously need the risk people, the project mm-hmm. manager, there will be other stakeholders that it's probably no harm to have in the room. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of side benefits, from doing this, it's not just about getting to uh, an accurate budget or an actual, accurate, accurate, accurate schedule, excuse me. You know, there is an element of team bonding that you get out of these sessions. There's an element of shared understanding of what the project is about and what the risks are in the project that have huge benefits as you start to deliver that project. Um, so I would say that a key thing is to make sure that enough of people from a diverse Range of 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 skill sets and technical parts of the project, or you know, disciplines, professions, contribute at an early stage because then you will have greater confidence that you've covered all of the risks, and the inputs will be the much more much more accurate for it. You know. It may be a case that some people, while they'll be able to tell you about the risk, might find might struggle to quantify it. They might be go, well, what's the what's the likely impact of that in terms of cost or time? And they might really struggle with that. So that's okay, you can park that. And mm-hmm. maybe you can sit down with the project manager and the commercial people at a later point and, and they can figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. And they can come up with some sort of a formula or a method of calculating the minimum most likely maximum impacts on cost and schedule but um i think i think you know um the other thing is i suppose is to get a, a in terms of validating the inputs is just to get somebody maybe from another project to come in and have a peer review of it um we would quite often uh, start the risk uh, process for a project with looking at a previous project Mm -hmm. what were the risks that were on the previous project or looking at a lessons learned report from Mm -hmm. a a similar project will often be a rich source of 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 information and risks which you know can give you that confidence that the inputs that you're putting in are valid because this has happened before and this is the lessons that the last project uh, gave us so they're they're all things to consider to make it to make it better
0: yeah, I think it's a lot there for for the listeners to take away from it. They'll hopefully get the best out of the QRA for them because it's it's all invaluable information there. Um just kind of wrapping things up then a little bit on the on the topic. Um, you know, organisations that we've dealt with in the past can vary in in terms of what they want from a QRA. You know, in terms of knocking up a fifty page report or some are happy just to do it on a page or two. Um, in your opinion, you know, what what are the key outputs from a QRA that have have helped you make decisions?
1: um yeah i think that uh, we touched on it earlier on so the, the the one of the most important things is to get the range of outcomes at the probability intervals so you know um let's just take a, a, a quantitative cost risk assessment uh, more often than not an organization is going to use that to inform their risk allowance or contingency within mm-hmm. their budget um and it's really for that organisation and 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 for them to decide what their risk appetite is <laughs> so understanding from a probability of 10% up to 90% um is is an important output and they can then they can then you know pick p50 or p80 and some organisations are pretty prescriptive about it yeah. so that's undoubtedly a key output another key output is obviously the top five or top 10 risks the model will tell you what the top risks are. What what is having the greatest impact on your overall risk number? Um, so understanding those risks because you know they're the ones that you need to work the hardest on, arguably. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tornado graph um, for those of your listeners who's familiar with it, that that sort of graphically illustrates uh, what risks are having the biggest impact on the on on the overall figure the overall output so i think that's really useful and perhaps the third thing then is if you're in the space of you know um this isn't your first rodeo and you're doing successive qras um there's a really nice visualization of your risk exposure that can be done um and i think that's really really helpful in terms of um in terms of proving that the work that you're putting into your risk management is paying off and that you're, you're reducing your exposure to risk. So, yeah, you know, it doesn't need to be a 50 page report. I mean, I think the body of the report can be five to 10 pages, perhaps not even that a couple of key tables, a couple of key graphs. Obviously you're going to put a lot of stuff in the appendix, the full risk register and stuff like that. Um, but in, in, in my experience, those three things are probably the most important. Mm -hmm.
0: No, it's actually, Again, it's it's another key valuable piece of of uh information and, and experience from you that I think you know everyone can really take away from from that. Um so that really kind of brings us to the end of the topic. Um, but you know, as as we get towards the end of the podcast and, and all our regulars will know uh that at this point we tend to ask our guests the question, you know, if you could give yourself one piece of advice at the start of your career that uh that may have, you may have picked up along the way that, you know, what would it be? Um and it doesn't need to be QRA related
1: yeah um <clears throat> i suppose one of the things and maybe it's a personal thing but i'll share it with you nonetheless um i think that um doing a bit of work in terms of trying to understand yourself is really really important and i say that in the context of the relationships that you will have with people over the course of your career whether they be uh, people that you're managing people you're your own level or grade are are, are those that are managing you and and your seniors and i suppose it probably took me quite a while for the penny to drop as you might appreciate i started off my career working in the cut and trust of construction um, and particularly in Greenmax. i alluded to the fact that we had our own workforce so you were Mm -hmm. you were I don't know if motivating is the right word, but you were you were managing a workforce on yeah. the ground and, you know, they weren't professionals um, as such, but, you know, they, they were great at their job and stuff like that. But it was pretty, pretty gruff. There wasn't a lot of political correctness and uh, <laughs> nobody was using pronouns or anything like that. Yeah. But um, so then to move into a more professional sort of arena when you get into on the client side and, you know, even at the higher levels in a contracting organization, and you're dealing with a broader range of stakeholders, a broader range of, uh, of, of colleagues from different functions, uh, finance and marketing and stuff like that. That's when your interpersonal relationships with them and your ability to, to work with those diverse range of people who will all have different personalities, different perspectives, um, that it can be, you know, it can be probably quite easy for some it can be challenging for, mother, for others. And I think the key to unlocking that is to start by understanding yourself. So, um, you know, if I was to give myself a little bit of advice, it would have been to probably put a book or two in front of me and make me read them at a much younger age. You know, I'm particularly thinking about things like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, um, win-win, uh, all of that sort of stuff you know, I think that it pays huge dividends. So your ability to get to, to get on with people and in order to do that, you need to understand yourself before you try to understand others. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, no, I think no matter what walk of life you're in, um, the ability to... And you don't have to... Sorry, you don't have to get on with everybody as in you don't have to be best friends with them. You just have to mm-hmm. learn how to work with them and get the best out of them and get the best out of it together. Um So... I think that that would be the best piece of advice um, at the start of your career. I don't think it was focused on much when I was a young graduate. Perhaps they do focus it on more now in in in, in universities. But certainly, don't underestimate um, what what is needed. And I think particularly for the the male cohort on on the call, um, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done now that that has helped. Uh, to understand that males mature much later than females from an emotional intelligence point of view. And, um, sometimes it's well into their thirties, sometimes into their forties before, you know, and, and maybe help by having a family or something like that, that they become a bit more, uh, considerate and a bit more thoughtful about understanding themselves and understanding others. So, um, that would be, that would be something that would be, um, <clears throat> would be my
0: advice for what it's mm-hmm. worth. No, it's really insightful, and you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think it's, um, you know, it, I I'd pass that on to myself at a younger stage as well. So yeah, it's, <laughs> I'd have to agree massively with that one. Um, I mean, that really does bring us to the end of the podcast. So it only leaves me to 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 thank you, you know, a great deal, Tom, for for your time and and your valuable insights today. Um, so you know, bringing us to the end of it, if if any of the listeners want to contact you uh, regarding this episode or anything else with it, you know, what how's the best way for them to reach out for you?
1: Yeah, well listen, thanks very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it and a um, yeah, I hope hope that your listeners get something from it. Yeah, look, um, you know, Tom Carey work for Turner and Townsend in Ireland, so anybody will get me on LinkedIn. Um if you want to drop me an email, it's Tom.carey at turntown dot com. Um but yeah, you know, uh, probably LinkedIn is the best way to 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 reach out to me. Um so I look forward
0: to hearing from some of your listeners. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. So, uh, but everyone, thanks for listening and, uh, we'll be back with an episode soon. Great. Thank you, Andy. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, please make sure to follow Optimize on our social media platforms, where you can subscribe to this podcast, be notified of the latest releases and help us broaden our reach to the wider risk community. You can also find the full back catalogue from season one where we've interviewed some of the disciplines most renowned thought leaders around the industry's most pressing topics. If you'd like to get in touch either as a future guest or with any subject suggestions you'd like to hear covered please contact us using the address in the podcast notes below and please join us next time where we'll be hearing the thoughts of another key decision maker and their experiences with risk management. Until then thanks for listening and take care.